I'm Dan Kimbrough, and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. And welcome, everybody, back to another episode of Systemic. I am Dan Kimbrough, and today with me, I have Madeline Metzger. Madeline, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Madeline is a marketer, communicator, and teacher committed to cultivating community, social justice, and personal development. Uh, she works at Everance. Is that the correct pronunciation? Yes. Everance Financial as the vice president of marketing, uh, which is a faith-based financial service organizing uh, organization that helps individuals and organizations and churches integrate faith and values into their financial decisions. Uh, And before working at Everance, uh, worked at the Church World Service, which is an international humanitarian organization. Uh, Madeline also speaks publicly on topics of anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and works with brands and organizations as well, and is a member of the Manchester University Board of Trustees. Uh, and Madeline got her bachelor's degree and a Bachelor of Arts. Is it really arts? I don't know why I was thought it was science. Um, and, and no, it was definitely arts. It was definitely arts. <laughs> uh, and I say that because we went to the same university. So we both got <laughs> communication degrees from uh, Manchester University now, uh, what used to be Manchester College, and then your master's in uh, business administration from Bluffton University. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, so before we get into sort of talking about um, the model minority myth, I want us to sort of check in and see with this past year and being Asian American, what was it like sort of seeing the re- resurgence of anti-Asian American hate? You know, it, it, it was, it was rough. I'm not going to lie. Um, and I should say that while the, the general media seemed to pick up on the rise in anti-Asian and Pacific Islander um, sentiments kind of, you know, within the past several months here, I really, we saw it happening early in the pandemic, early in 2020, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as soon as, as um, certain language was being used related to the China virus. Um, You know, I mean, and I think anyone who is of Asian American descent probably, I mean, at the very least cringed um, when that was used, if not worse. Um, So, and also this is not anything new. I mean, anti-Asian and Pacific Islander violence and, um, Prejudice has been part of our society for generations and it's just, but it is sad. It's sad and it's angering and disheartening to see, to see it being carried out so blatantly, I think. And it's interesting that this isn't something that's new. And I think that America often has a short-term memory loss issue and that (laughs) this, this seems like a new fad or new thing that's happened as of late but when you look back at american history 
this is an ongoing occurrence specifically with the AAPI community, whether it was early on with disease again and blaming for the plague early on or how Asian American communities were sort of considered sort of the bad neighborhoods and places you didn't want to go. And so Mm -hmm. there were violence then. And so this is, unfortunately, it's a pattern that keeps happening. Um, In your lifetime, had you seen it ever get this bad before? Um, I have not necessarily. And I should, I should clarify Mm -hmm. that. um, So while I identify as Mm Amerasian, which uh, is actually a, a a legal term for someone who is, um, whose father is American Uh, and whose mother is an Asian national or former Asian national. So um, my, my dad is uh, American. He grew up in, in Northern Indiana. Um, My mother is originally from Vietnam. She's now a U.S. citizen. Um, She came to the States after she and my dad married. He was in brother and volunteer service and um, he was a conscientious objector to the war, but um, was in Vietnam during the war, helping communities and, um, and they met there. So, um, so the other dichotomy for me is that I tend to see anti-Asian, anti-Pacific Islander sentiment directed more toward my mother, who is very obviously Asian. You know, she can't hide the fact that she is a Vietnamese American than I do to myself because, um, I have enough of my dad's features and that, um, I, I tell people I'm kind of racially ambiguous if they don't know who I am and, <laughs> and don't know my background. So um, so I, I should say that I myself have not seen it rise to this level during my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean, though, that my experience is the same as others. Right. Correct. Uh, I, I've, I was fortunate. Well, fortunate is a, probably the wrong word. I grew up in a uh, relatively middle class uh, Midwestern area. Uh, I know that uh, those in the AAPI community who grew up in uh, or lived in other other types of settings have very different experiences mm-hmm. than, than I did. But from my perspective, this, this seems to be uh, worse than anything that I've seen during my lifetime. Gotcha. Okay. And thank you for that for clarification. I didn't know that that was a, an actual legal term. So. Yes. Yes. Actually, um, I think it was, I think it was used for a while, but it it became a little bit more well known after several years after the the Vietnam War ended. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was the late seventies or early eighties. I probably should have looked that up before I joined <laughs> <No>. this <laughs> this interview. But uh, the the U.S. government passed passed an act that allowed um, Amerasian Amerasian children, although a lot of them were adults or teenagers at the time. Um, Amerasian children who had been left behind in Vietnam to legally immigrate to the U.S. Okay. Um, so that's that was when the term became a little bit more well known within within our society's context. Okay. Very very cool. Uh, and so speaking about that time period, I, I wonder if that the allowing for the, those children uh, and young adults to come over falls in that same period where there was this switch. So looking at the idea of the model minority, um, there was the New York Times articles in 1966 was the first time that it was coined. But before then, like I said, you know, Asian Americans weren't always deemed in this sort of model light. And then this article comes out, which sort of flips that. And so I'm wondering if that time period aligns with that. Uh, maybe a bit, although the the Vietnam War started around around that time in the mm-hmm. late sixties. Um, I, 
I'm not entirely sure what spurred that that kind of movement towards <laughs> towards um, putting that label on on Asian Americans, um, but I do feel like it was it was used as a way to kind of create a wedge between the dominant culture and other racial and ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the model minority myth has been used to kind of lift up the AAPI community inappropriately, I think, as, um, to, as kind of a way to say to other racial and ethnic groups in, in our country, you know, why can't you be more like these, <laughs> these Asians <laughs> who, um, yeah, for various reasons. And I mean, we have a long history in this country of of doing that, of finding ways to put a wedge between groups so that that so that we maintain the power and privilege of the dominant culture. No, I agree. It's 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 interesting um, because when I, I lived in Bellingham, Washington for a short time and okay. it was it's just north of Seattle and it was the first time. Like Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I'm from, there is a very large Asian American population. Um, mm-hmm. But like this was the first time I was somewhere where like numbers were almost equal across the board. And mm-hmm. it was the f- probably the first time in my life that I'd ever felt that there was a really strict division of non-dominant culture races. And so like meeting Native American or indigenous persons who were there, meeting the Asian American community and like the the wedges that were there, I'd never understood it. Like I was like, Mm -hmm. when it comes to racism, and it sounds horrible to say it's an us versus them thing, but like people of color are always sort of on one side against the dominant culture in that wedge I'd never seen before that that's where that dominance came from was how very rigid it was where, nope, this is the black community. This is the Asian community. This is the indigenous community. And there's deep seated hatred between them. And I was, how, like, how did this happen? But again, being from the Midwest, those lines hadn't been drawn between groups that way. And it was really interesting to see that. Yeah. Or at least not drawn as, as, Starkly. Right, right. Yes, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons for it. But one of the most significant reasons, I think, is, um, you know, the rise of, of capitalism and, and the rugged American individualism mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in our society. And, um, you know, there, there there's history out there that shows that um, companies and, and company executives in the past uh, who employed white collar workers, like such as like in the mining industry or, mm-hmm. you know, basically any industry where you have a working class population um, of, of corporate leaders using differences among their employees to kind of keep keep them separate, keep their mindset separate, at least. Right. Right. In order to to in order for them to maintain their white class um, status and power over their employees. And, uh, I, so I know that that's one, one way that that has manifested itself in, in our society historically. I, I think that, uh, you can apply that across the board to, to other situations and circumstances that are also inherently designed to maintain the dominant culture's norm, um, you know, normative, white culture in our country. Um, you know, we saw it in the, the Rodney King um, situation in, in, the, in LA. Yeah, the LA riots. How old were we when, yeah, the LA riots. <laughs> yeah. How old were we when that happened? Oh, That's, that, was that 96? Oh, maybe. I think so. We were in high but, school, definitely. 
Yeah. So the, the, um, the LA riots, you know, um, the, the Asian American community, like location, the geography of the Asian American community was in between Mm -hmm. the African American community in LA and the white community in LA. And we saw as the violence spilled over into the Asian American community. And we saw that the, um, the police did not respond as quickly as they probably would have if it had spilled over into the white community. And, and so that was, that's another example of how, how the Asian American community was used as a buffer right. between, between the white dominant culture and in this instance, the, the African-American, the black community. And it's, um, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go say, ahead. Well, it's, and it's so interesting. Um, and in doing research just for this conversation, but in general, trying to, you know, better understand things. I I know growing up, you know, young Dan was always taught that in every black community, there's going to be a Korean nail salon or a Vietnamese grocer somewhere because mm-hmm. they were taking those storefronts. They, the, the Asian Americans were taking those storefronts from black people being able to have businesses. And I never really understood it, but like that was that was my mentality. And then in doing the research, it really started to dawn on me that no, those neighbor those businesses and those neighborhoods being a buffer were done intentionally, right? Like we mm-hmm. we, we would rather give business opportunities to the Asian American community than to the Black community, but let's put them in those communities. Let's push exactly. that yeah. division, and so that they are fighting amongst themselves, not realizing exactly. in a capitalistic society the bank gave the money to them and not to you. Not they said, can I have this corner? The bank did this. Yes. 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 So then that, I mean, there's an intersectionality of all of these situations, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, because, because I mean, we could do an entire podcast episode about the history of redlining with the black community. Well, that also impacted other, other communities of color and other immigrant communities as well. And yes, so this plays right into that model minority myth of, you know, banks feeling like uh, maybe investing in an Asian or AAPI business was less risky than investing in a black business, but yet the Asian business still couldn't technically get that loan for, you know, a neighborhood that was closer to the white neighborhood, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, And I, and and I think there's a flip side to the model minority myth as well as that it makes it seem like all Asian Americans are doing well. Everyone has succeeded. And when I was in Bellingham, we I worked at a TV station and we were doing uh, we were covering this the Walk for Rice, which was this fundraiser to help raise funds for Asian American food pantries and help buy rice for older Asian Americans whose diets were still sort of heavily rice based. And it was the first time. As someone who worked in the media, even I had ever sort of stopped and realized we don't really see poor Asian communities being uplifted or helped out across the country unless there's a large Asian population. And that that myth almost shelters and hides the fact that no, like minority communities, regardless of who they are, are have housing issues, have food shortage issues like these issues are real, but we don't see them. And it's almost exactly. like the Cosby effect of like when Cosby was on TV, well, look, black people have made it. It's a, it's, a, it's a lawyer and a doctor. 
Yeah. Well, no, good times is still on as well, though. Let's not forget that, like, right. there's a flip right. side to this situation. Yes. But there was never yes. a good. There was never a good. Uh, good times for the Asian American community. We only see doctors and lawyers and and business people, but we don't realize no. There's there's still a lot of work to be done. Yes. Yes. There's just as much socioeconomic um, diversity within the AAPI community as there is in any other community, and um, and you're right. The model minority myth perpetuates the stereotype that all Asians are successful, have all the opportunities afforded to them. Um, it, it puts them alongside the dominant white culture, but not. Right. And, and then that creates in, in and of itself, additional barriers to understanding the whole story, understanding how systemically it, uh, inequities impact the Asian and Pacific Islander community across the entirety mm-hmm. of of that community, and and also it perpetuates the stereotype that all Asians are the same, and they're not. Uh, Very much the, so. <laughs> the AAPI community has so much diversity in it in and of itself, um, and 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 the model minority myth silences the beauty of of that diversity within the AAPI community. I think, which is amazing that. In a country where we where we rapidly recognize differences in groups and things that we always lump the Asian American community together, which even in talking about it, like I always feel bad because I'm like, but Asian American means so many things. Like, yes, it's, yeah. it is the, if not if it's not the largest, it is it's one of the largest minority groups that exist in the country because it covers so much of Asia and the Pacific Islander that gets added in as well. Like you're talking about a large part of the con- the world sort of right. in one group. And it's like, but there's so many differences within that community that like there are different issues amongst themselves that yes. haven't been worked out. But we lump them all together and go, oh, well, you're Asian. So xyz and it's like well no but this person's chinese and speaks mandarin this person's chinese and speaks cantonese that person's right. korean like yes these are three yes. entirely different communities <laughs> yes entirely different communities some of which have shared history some of which that shared history has not always been very friendly mm-hmm. um, so, and and others that have you know very different cultural experiences and um and nuances and traditions and and yes in a way put putting the aapi community together can both strengthen that community but also kind of erases or ignores each individual's experience and you know i've i have felt similarly uh when when i've when people talk about like the the latinx the mm-hmm. Latino and Hispanic community, it's like, you know, they have such a vast array of cultural heritage differences themselves. Same with indigenous communities mm-hmm. and, um, and or when someone refers to, you know, Africa, the continent, as if it's a country, it's like, <laughs> there are so many, there's so much for us to understand and learn that I think would actually benefit all of us if we were to get past these stereotype labels. Agreed. And I, and I, and I often wonder sometimes if it's, if it's because the dominant culture is okay with being white, like there's, and and there's certain parts of the country where like, Oh, well, this is the Irish community and this is the Italian community. And over here's the Polish community. But when it comes down to it, like they, they themselves amass together as a white community. 
Mm-hmm. And because of that, they they look to mirror it sometimes in minority communities. And it's like, well, no, but like, yes, this is Latinx, but like that person's from Guatemala. This person's from Honduras. This person's Mexican. Right. Like they're literally central to America down to, um, I can't think of the country right now, Argentina. Like there's a lot of countries and cultures that are there and lumping right. it together as one is sort of terrible. But when you look at the flip side, we tend to lump all of European descent is white and there's rarely ever any pushback there. Right. And I think some of that has been historic, you mm-hmm. know, um, I mean, let's be real. Anyone who is white in America comes, is descended from an immigrant. Right. Um, you know, like <laughs> that was what this country was. This country as, as it exists now, that's how it was built. Of course, the indigenous communities would say otherwise, and I would agree with them, but you know what I'm right. trying to yeah, say. Exactly. And, and so then when, when other white European immigrant communities started um, coming to the, to the U.S., like the, the Irish, mm-hmm. like the Italians, um, you know, they were ostracized at first, too, because of, right. you know, old class and socioeconomic structures from from Europe but but the goal was that they were seen as white mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yet there's no way for the AAPI community black community Latinx indigenous communities to be seen as white right and and I think that's spot on that, especially when you look at early chattel laws and slavery, where you originally there were those separations where you were Irish and you came over as a indentured servant, but eventually we, mm-hmm. you know, the country moves to the point of nope, we're going to go ahead and class all folks from Africa, which means all black people at that point are going to be slaves. Mm-hmm. And you know we mm-hmm. go from a caste system to the, a very racialized system, and that yes. yes. Later on in time, you know, when the Irish came over and other folks, there was that division. But when it boiled down to how are we going to separate and looking at capitalism? Nope, no, nope, we're going to keep it as white versus black. And that I think that lumping together harms is another way of harming minority communities by mm-hmm. stripping out the individual differences that are there. Because even when you talk about black versus African-American, like black includes those of African recent African descent, you know, not those who came mm-hmm. from slaves. And people mm-hmm. get confused with that. They're like, well, there's no difference. I mean, there is. <laughs> there's a very yeah. big difference. Like if someone, you know, came here from Nigeria, like recently, like they are black, but they are not African-American, like they're Nigerian-American. Right. right. And I think that gets lost sometimes in conversations because of stereotyping and labels. I, I agree. And also like the the Afro-Latino right. um, community as well. I mean, they have vastly different experiences than than others within the same Latinx community even. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. It, it strips away that individualism. It strips away um, the unique experiences that we all face as human beings mm-hmm. um, and and tries to lump it all into one, one easy to package um, stereotype. So sort of you know moving back into the idea of model minority because we've gone off a little bit. Oh yeah. <laughs> no problem. Um, but... Oh yeah, that's what we were supposed to talk about. <laughs> um I guess I wonder the do you see a solution to that? How do we how do we still protect Asian Americans, which unfortunately, you know, ends up being that shield that holds everyone in there together, but also deconstruct this uh, this myth? How do we really sort of start seeing Asian Americans as individuals? as minorities, as not that that's a 
you know what I mean? But you know, like yeah. as a group that that still has needs help amongst vast issues, but but they're not at the model. Like there is no model because right. the myth of the model minority is meant as a wedge, right? If yes. they can do it, why can't the rest of you? Why are you complaining? How do we tear that down without hurting the Asian American community? Yeah. Well, I think the first step is is acknowledging that the model minority myth is false. Mm-hmm. That it is it's a myth that it does not exist. <laughs> um <laughs> and that it it's paradoxically like just yeah. <laughs> so that's the first step. The, I, then I think after that, I, it's important to have conversations like what you and I are having today mm-hmm. and uh, deconstructing what what does that mean and what does how does that change our perspective? And then for us as a society to continue to learn as much as we can to um, interact with people who have different worldviews, have different life experiences, who have different racial ethnic backgrounds than we do ourselves. Um, Learn as much as we can about the different cultures that are part of this larger community. uh, And and also understand what barriers exist within the different communities, even if it's not the one that you grew up in or are familiar with. I think we'll start to recognize not only that um, barriers to privilege in this society are very similar across different racial ethnic groups mm-hmm. but that they also impact us in different ways because of because of the wedges that have been driven between us right and because of the different experiences you know i i won't say that the the api experience is exactly the same as the african american experience in the us it's not but we are impacted by similar structures, systemic structures of isms, right. racism, socioeconomic ism, etc. Uh, and I think that once we once we are able to grapple as a society the harm that um, has been embedded in our in our society over generations, and acknowledge that, but then also um, do the work to dismantle that mm-hmm. by understanding how it impacts the others. <laughs> and, um, you know, I use that term lovingly because right, right. <laughs> I know it's not often used lovingly, but <laughs> if we, if we can step outside of ourselves and, and see how certain things impact, you know, our neighbor, you know, five blocks down differently than it impacts us. I think that opens a whole new dialogue for us as a society. Agreed. Um, I, and I love that. And I think that you're right that in this country, the system of oppression and racism is almost the exact same, but the impact is always felt differently. Yes. And in that difference, there does become friction between minority groups that that helps out white society because mm-hmm. there's that friction that's there but if we can learn to understand each other's friction that yes. that will sort of help move it all move it along and um one of the articles that i was reading it it was interesting because the one person talked about how they they didn't think the model minority myth was prejudice because in their individual experience it was true amongst all the asian americans they knew and it struck me how how off putting that was like, well, because that's what I see 
it's a fact now. It must be true. And that, that's so much of the problem that we have today is that our limited worldview is how we choose to see the entire world and never step outside mm-hmm. of it because it's comfortable to stay mm-hmm. in that lane. But you're right. If we just go down the street five or six blocks and and meet new people and talk and just have an honest discussion. Oh, so you have to deal with this, too. Oh, and that's mm-hmm. how that impacts you. Like, I think mm-hmm. it really changes things because, again, with the model minority myth, looking at the the amount of Asian-Americans who were able to migrate and move into suburbs Mm-hmm. It builds up this myth. We'll see. Look, they're they're living in the suburbs, is doing well. And it's like, yeah, but you redlined black people, mm-hmm. <laughs> and by yeah. by redlining black people, you left spaces open for Asian Americans, right? And but you refuse to look at what happened there and the intersectionality. I think that those are the base conversations that we're missing. Yes, and also the fact that the the model minority myth kind of it sets up the AAPI, well, the white. How do I say this? The white interpretation of the AAPI right. okay. experience as supposedly positive. Mm-hmm. And and when in actuality, it's still setting them apart. Right. So all those instances where the where uh, you know individuals from the AAPI community that we know who might fit that model minority myth, you know, well. Yeah, that's fact, and it's good for them, right? Because they've been upwardly mobile, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know they've they've had opportunities to, you know, pursue their education and pursue their careers, and um, you know, start building generational wealth through homeownership and et cetera, et cetera. But yet, it still sets them apart. And like we were saying earlier, it doesn't talk about the complete AAPI community's experience. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think that's and I think that happens in almost any community where you yeah. get a group of individuals who who do well, who have have managed to traverse the system and have succeeded. And everyone's like, well, look, they did it. Why right. can't the rest so of why the can't you? Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah. that's lovely that they were able to traverse it and do it. But like, how difficult was it? What means were yeah. made available? Like, what are all the little pieces that you're looking you're choosing to overlook? Um, and I think the other thing, too, that we tend to forget is that for as long as Asian Americans have been in America, there's always been, again, trouble going back to the beginning. Like there's always been this issue of racism and and them being an other, unless mm-hmm. it's helpful to the white community. Exactly. You know, when it yep. works in making a division and it sounds horrible almost to say on color lines, but like Asian Americans have ability to almost pass color wise, like they're light enough where we're mm-hmm. comfortable around them. So if we can voice them up just enough to keep darker individuals separate, then we're mm-hmm. okay with it. But at the second that like something goes slightly wrong, well, no, you're still a minority though. Mm-hmm. And exactly. that history often gets forgotten of all like the massacres that have happened in Asian American communities, the internment, you know, commun- the camps of the after World War II, like all of mm-hmm. those things that are a part of American history. We want to overlook them, but, but you've made it though. But you've mm-hmm. made it. it's like, what did it take to get this far even? Right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, well, I know that you are busy, and so I don't want to take up too much of your time. So thank you very much. Um, thank you. Is there anything else you want to add before we go? Any last minute thoughts or hope for the future or anything? You know, I just, I, in the midst of, of feeling really disheartened and frustrated with how, I mean, racism in general seems to now be acceptable once again in our society. Unfortunately. Uh, I, I do, yeah, unfortunately, I do feel hope because because we have, we have pockets like this podcast, uh, 
that are saying, no, this is not okay. And we need to talk about it. And, and that gives me hope because I, I've also seen an increase in that recently. And, and so on my bad days, I try and focus on, on, on that hope and that positive direction of, you know, maybe, maybe this is our, this, maybe this is our tipping point. Maybe this is when, when we can finally say enough is enough. We're not going to keep treating people like this. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. To have finally have a tipping point. So. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. Hopefully, fingers <laughs> crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Right. I have my cynical days too. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> oh, no. I know. I know. We all do. So. <laughs> well, again, thank you very much, Madeline. This has been amazing. Thank you, Dan. And hopefully, we'll get a chance to talk again soon. Yes. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Systemic. This podcast aims to create a community of change and can only do so through your support. Please make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would, head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and leave a review. The more you share and review Systemic, the more our community of change can grow. Another way you can help is supporting Systemic on Patreon. Your contributions will allow the podcast to expand and give you the opportunity to support Systemic offline. Thank you again for listening and your support. Systemic is a production and passion of Park Multimedia. And remember, to solve any problem, you must first acknowledge it exists.